Thank you for listening to this Q&A session of Questioning Christianity. We hope you'll continue exploring Christianity by requesting your free copy of Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. Free copies will be shipped while supplies last. To get your copy, go to gospelandlife.com free. Again, that's gospelandlife.com free. All right, Tim, you ended with highlighting that Christianity is a non-oppressive absolute truth, that if Christians become oppressors, they're rejecting what's at the heart of their faith. But question, why have so many religious people, including Christians, done so much injustice? Well, I mean, there's no good excuse. So I'm, I'm afraid if I give you an explanation, I can give you explanations, but it's going to sound like an excuse, and it, you mustn't read it as that. I really don't want to take any blame away. I, an explanation is not the same as a justification. Is that right? Uh, so I'm going to take this as a genuine request for information. How can that happen? Um, if one of the diff- on the outside of Christianity, if you're outside, that is, say you don't believe, you're not Christian, you don't believe in Christianity, um, you may hear somebody say, well, Christians are saved by grace alone. They're saved not because of their good works, but just because of God's forgiveness. And, um, and, and you may hear people say that's very different than other religions because every other religion says you, you achieve salvation or you, you touch the divine or you connect to God through a number of things you must do, living in a certain way. In a sense, you merit or you earn your salvation. And Christianity says, no, it's not earned, it's a gift, it's received. Now, I've noticed over the years that even though a person who is not actually on the inside and embraced Christianity, if you're outside and you hear that, it doesn't seem to be all that radical. I mean, I, uh, they say, yeah, 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 you, you get forgiven. But you probably think that, um, that really Christianity still is basically trying to live like Jesus, and that's what a Christian is. No, it's not. In fact, you can't be a Christian. You will not. Historically, Christian theology would be to say, uh, you are actually not born again, or you're not converted, or you haven't received the Holy Spirit, or you haven't had God really come into your life, or whatever you want to say. Um, as long as you really think that being a Christian is trying to be a good person and live like Jesus, it really is uh, for people who are willing to admit they're not good people and that they have no hope without a complete Savior. Okay. What that means then, of course, is when pe- people do not come into Christianity because they have achieved something, they come in because they haven't achieved something and they're willing to admit that. I, therefore, over the years, most people say, if you claim to be a Christian, you really ought to be a better person than everybody else. And therefore, I should, I, I should, I should hold you to a higher standard. And whenever I hear that, I'm ambivalent because to some degree, of course, the Bible is filled with saying, if you really have been saved by grace, it's going to change your life eventually. But the point is, you don't clean up your life to become a Christian. You come as you are. Um, and, uh, and therefore, there's a whole lot of broken people that get, come into Christianity, and they really aren't very far along the road to growth. And I would say that because of that, I just see plenty of in, immature behavior in real Christians, but they are real Christians. Somebody from the outside might say, well, how can that be a real Christian? Look at how they're behaving. They're, they still have a terrible temper. Uh, they, still are, they're st- they still speak so uh, intemperately at, at work, and they're supposed to be a born-again Christian. Well, the answer is, on the one hand, yes, they have to change. There's no excuse for that. In many, many ways, they have less excuse than they ever have because crisis in their life. On the other hand, 
they're not saved by cleaning up their act. And so I got, what I'm trying to say is uh, the it's not a justification, it's an explanation. Christians are actually not only, I would say, not on the whole paragons of virtue, but in many ways they're the people who are willing to admit that they're not. Um, some years ago, um, I heard a minister say this, and I think he's right. He says, uh, the main thing for most people between, um, the, the, he would say the biggest barrier, he thinks, between human beings and God is not your sin, but it's your damnable good works. And what he means by that is that the, the point of Christianity is to say, you've got to see that even the good things you've done are really not all that good. Uh, you, you've done them for bad motives. You've done them uh, to control people. You've done them to patch up an identity for yourself. You've done them to try to get God to make you, you know, to bless you and that sort of thing. And he would actually say, um, uh, people who think that they're pretty good actually have the biggest problem with Christianity. People who are finally willing to admit their moral failures, they've got a door right on in. What that does mean is that there's really a fair number of broken people in the Christian faith. And therefore, all I know is over the years as a pastor, I've often had a lot of folks who are really not behaving like they should, and people who are not in the church looking at that and saying, there's your Christianity. On, and on the one hand, the answer is, yeah, that's their, there's Christianity. That you can, you can actually have a love relationship with Jesus Christ and be an incredibly imperfect person. There it is. That's great. On the other hand, there it is, and it's a little embarrassing. Uh, so I'm trying to give you an explanation for why a lot of Christians misbehave without trying to justify it at all. Um, speaking of imperfect people, uh, I think this is a good follow-up question to um, what you just said. Um, Do you have somebody in mind? Uh, yeah. Not somebody in mind, maybe uh, years of um, church practice. If the idea of human rights comes from Christianity, as you claimed, then why, during the first 1,500 years of the church's history, did the church not have it? Well, um, boy, nobody exactly had it, even though the church... Um, Look, in, um, in, in, in the, there was a guy named, I think I might have mentioned this last week, maybe not. It's hard to remember. I, I speak a lot of places. Um, did I mention the Cappadocian Fathers last week? I think I did. Some of you might know. Uh, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory, uh, there was, they, they, they lived in the 4th or 5th century. They were Greek Orthodox Christians. I mean, they were... They were uh, they were bishops, and they were brilliant philosophers and theologians, and they began to tease out a lot of the implications of what the Bible said about the image of God, and they never used the word human rights, but actually, even back then, even the, in the early church, you can already find sermons. Uh, one of them, I'll give you a perfect example. Basil has a very famous sermon in which he says, slavery is always wrong because slaves are bought and he says, how could you put a price tag on the image of God? And then he used a couple of, when I, last time I read it, there's a whole lot of, you know, their, their financial currency. One of them was the Obol, O-B-O-L, okay? Who would have thought? Um, and he says, how many Obols for, for, for the image of God? And so he was saying the implication of the image of God is you must never actually ever have a slave. So he's working out the implications of what's in the Bible. And uh, some people would say that they were one of the first people in the history of the world to kind of start to uh, work out a doctrine of human rights. So it took time. 
But uh, again, the, the, the raw material was in the Bible, where it wasn't in a lot of other cultures. And so I'm trying to get you to give the Bible credit, but <clears throat> the church certainly uh, didn't always understand the implications of what they believed. I'm getting a lot of questions about how justice and Christianity intersect in the political sphere. Um, this person, this question was actually asked um, ahead of time, sent in online when someone registered, and it says, why do Christians align themselves with Republicans who aren't focusing on social issues such as child homelessness, poverty, and hunger? I find it strange that hot-button issues like marriage rights and abortion sway Christian politics instead of compassion. Well, uh, I don't think it's my, I don't think it's my job to, I'm here trying to represent Christianity, period. Um, I don't think it's my job to, um, for example, um, should, it, should, a, um, should a nation have an immigration policy? Should it have an immigration policy? Um, <clears throat> I think most people would say, yeah, there, there, there ought to be some, uh, a nation ought to have borders and therefore not everybody should be able to walk over it and there should be some orderly way of, of receiving immigrants, okay. On the other hand, and, and so is America's immigration policy okay? Is it broken? What it should it be? It's not my job to tell you. However, uh, because as a Christian, I don't know. I mean, and, and the Bible doesn't speak to that, and it's my job to kind of tell you what the Christian truth is. But the Bible does talk about racism. It does talk about, um, uh, in fact, the Bible actually goes out of its way to say you must not uh, oppress the alien, the immigrant. You must not despise them. You must treat, you must embrace them. And da, 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 da. So if there's a public policy, and in here I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to be, uh, uh, I don't want to get beyond what the, what the, in other words, I, you have to apply this, but the point is, if you have a party, for example, that's promoting uh, negative attitude towards immigrants in general, and negative attitudes toward people of other races in general, that's wrong. And uh, on the other hand, my guess is that uh, the Christians who are involved with, um, here's the problem. So I'm just, I am saying, on the other hand, Keep this in mind that neither party, both parties have ethical packages, as you know. Um, if you want to run to be a Republican or run to be, you know, uh, for a Democrat, you can't just say, well, this is my issue. They, they, they'll, they'll, they'll shoot you down unless you're with them on all the issues. So uh, you might be a, uh, what if I'm, a, what if I'm a, a Christian and I say, well, I'm pro-life, okay? but I'm also really for gun control. And that's partly part of my pro-lifeness. I'm really for gun control. So where do I go? Uh, I got a problem. I really do have a problem. And I think most Christians, I hope most Christians would see that. I guess you may know that I'm on record in saying this, is I am actually very unhappy when Christians tend to um, so embrace one party that they give the impression, or they overtly say, all Christians must belong to this party. I, I don't see how you can do that. I think that's actually a form of idolatry where you're lifting up something human and putting it kind of into a divine place. The only other thing I'll say, and, and I, I'm rambling a little bit because there's too much to say about this, is um, I don't, I, I, I uh, so when you say, what about Christians that are all into the Republican Party and they act like only uh, Christians should all be Republican? I have a problem with that. On the other hand, I actually also have a problem with, with people who say Christians can't be Republican 
and they have to be Democrats because of all these moral issues. And by the way, there's plenty of people out there in social media saying that too. I would be against them both. Keep this in mind. It doesn't undermine the truth of Christianity. I'm here to try to get you to consider Christianity as a real option for yourselves. And so if you, whenever you look, this would be, this might, I might say, that, okay. Whenever you look at the inconsistencies of Christians and you criticize them, keep in mind that to a great degree, you're criticizing them for not living up to Christian standards. In other words, when you talk, talk about injustices when the church has uh, oppressed people, you're really actually using Christian standards to criticize them. Rightly so, with warrant, you are saying, you're not living up to your own standards. Fair. No excuses. But you see, you're not undermining the truth of Christianity, are you? Because you're actually using Christianity on the church. Do you see that? Rightly so. You're using, you say, the Bible says this, the Bible says this. How in the world can you be for that? How can you do that? How awful is that? You know, I don't mind. Beat them up. Go ahead. As long as you see you're using Christian standards against the church, which is fair, but that doesn't undermine the standards, does it? It doesn't really. Because you like the standards, otherwise you wouldn't be using it on them. So trying to make no excuses for these things, but at the same time trying to show that it doesn't, it should not undermine Christianity as a viable option for you. I think that is a good explanation of, but I do think the question is also trying to ask, why is it that Christians and the um, tend to, and the Republican Party tend to maybe more concerned with certain issues and less concerned with others. I think this question is trying to get at um, if Christians are in the, pursuing the Republican Party, they don't seem to have as much of a care for poverty, um, child poverty, homelessness, but seem to care more about mm -hmm. marriage rights and abortion. Um, well, I, but I think it's it probably, it's, it's that's just too sweeping to say. Now, keep this in mind. I have seen some people, I certainly have seen people who say, let the poor fund, fend for themselves. Um, uh, who, but it's also true that people disagree on how you help the poor, right? I hope you see that. There, uh, in fact, I will say, yeah, here's something interesting. Marxism says that if a person is poor, it's only because of social structure. If they're poor, it's not their fault. It's unjust social structure. You must never blame the victim. You must never say they're poor because they're this or that. It's always an unjust social structure. That's the Marxist approach. It's a philosophical anthropology of Marxism is to say that human beings are ultimately economic and social creatures and therefore everything can be explained by their social location. All right. The conservative approach is to say, if you're poor, it's your fault. You know, as long as, as long as it's a free country, as long as you can get out there and work, it's your fault. It's your, it's your, it's your values, it's your irresponsibility, it's your laziness, you know, you, you're, it, you get into crime, it's your fault. So on the one hand you say poverty is because of social structure, and the other hand you say poverty is because of a lack of personal responsibility. Now go to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament and read everything it says about poverty. And you know what it's going to say? I, let, me, let me give you two Proverbs, okay? One proverb is that if you work, you always have something to eat. Oh, now, by the way, proverbs are not necessarily promises. Uh, they're observations. So the, 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 you, if you go to Proverbs 10, 11, 12, that's mainly what you see. Uh, work hard, 
and you'll avoid poverty. Work hard and you'll have things to eat. Then you get to a place where it says, the field of the poor is filled with grain, but injustice sweeps it away. And you go, wait a minute, what? what? I thought it said that if you were, you have to remember that the Proverbs are not promises and they're not laws, they're observations about how life works. And what it's trying to tell you is that both, frankly, and even today, there's, a, there's no doubt about it that Republican policy tends to talk less about structural, social structural issues and tends to spend more time thinking about personal responsibility when it comes to trying to help the poor. And the Democratic Party tends to favor the Marxist approach. It's mainly social structure. And the Bible just cuts, it diagonalizes, I don't know if you heard that term before. Uh, the, the, in other words, what the Bible does is it, 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 both, it both contradicts both parties and also it also, you know, uh, doesn't ignore the concerns of either because the reality is poverty is more complicated than either party lets on. So as a Christian now, what am I supposed to do? Please don't tell me that if I go to the Republicans, I just absolutely hate the poor. That's just not fair. Uh, it could be there's people there who hate the poor or just despise the poor. It could be. could be. And by the way, I've met some who I think did pretty much despise the poor. But I don't think it's fair at all to say that. On the other hand, I don't think... Uh, you would say to a Democrat, any Democrat, that they don't believe in personal responsibility. But the fact is that both the parties, left and right, tend to be reductionistic. The Bible is three-dimensional. The Bible is way more nuanced. And as a Christian, I don't have a nice, easy, you know, uh, answer to which party I should be in. I just don't. On that area of poverty, I don't. All right, so um, continue on a little bit on this path. Um, multiple questions about um, Christians themselves. Again, you know, claiming that Christianity um, is responsible for influencing um, the creation of human rights and that Christians have a unique resource to live out human rights and justice. Mm -hmm. um, this person asks, how do you explain the human rights abuses of the American church to the LGBTQ community? Well, um, when Jesus Christ, yeah, I mean, it's, there's no excuse for that either. Now, by the way, um, the, uh, for example, for, well, I should say the second, not first. First, when Jesus Christ is asked, what does it mean to love your neighbor? He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan uh, is about a man who's a Samaritan who comes along and sees a man who's a Jew in the road. It would be very risky to stop and help this man who's been beaten up and who needs medical help and he needs money. And it's very risky, but the Good Samaritan stops, risks his life, goes into, a, a, it really basically gives a lot of practical help, very self-sacrificing. And the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They were not only of two different races, they were two different religions. So Jesus Christ, when asked, what does it mean to love your neighbor, gives us an example of someone who sacrificially helps someone of a different race and of a different religion. And these are people that hated each other. And Jesus Christ basically says that that's not supposed to be an outlier. That's the essence of what it means to, to love your neighbor. Now, all I can say is if uh, uh, Jesus is not saying both the religions are right. He's not saying that. He's not saying, well, the Samaritans, I guess the Samaritans, they had their own religion. Samaritans are okay. Jews are okay. It's all. He's not saying that. What he's just trying to say is you need to love each other whether or not you think the other person's a heretic. 
whether or not that person is of a different race, whether that person even is an enemy. Okay. Now, under those circumstances, let's grant for a second that Christians believe that homosexuality is wrong because of what the Bible says. For a minute, let's just say that's what Christians believe. It's, it's what most Christians believe. Does that give them any warrant to even be cold to a gay person? I mean, here's Jesus trying to say, what does it mean to love your neighbor? It means going to the mat for them. So, abuse, uh, ridicule, uh, being cold. I mean, even, even if a gay person has a very different view of, of, of morality than, than a Christian, there is absolutely no excuse. Now, having said that, I'm trying to say, you don't have to agree with somebody in order to love them. And I think that that goes both ways. You know, I don't want to say to a gay person, in order to love me, you've got to accept what I say about the Bible's view of sexual morality, and I shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to expect me to agree with you. Uh, on the other hand, uh, because that's exactly what happens. There's no way that the Good Samaritan necessarily converted to Judaism in order to love that man. So all I can say is there's absolutely no excuse, period. That's it. All right, switching gears a little bit. Um, this person says, you said that we can't put your faith in human reasoning to ensure human rights, that we need a supernatural absolute to justify them. But don't we rely on the Bible to give us information about what God says, and don't we need human reasoning to interpret the Bible? So are we just back at the same place that we are with the secularists in that we are relying on human reasoning to justify human rights? Uh, yeah, no, because, because um, if you... Uh, if you say there is a standard, in other words, there's a God, and he has spoken, and there's our standard for moral absolutes. We can argue about what the Bible says, and uh, we can come to different positions on it, but there's nothing inconsistent about saying there's moral absolutes. We have to use our human reason to understand the Bible, yes, but we're not using human reasoning to create the Bible. In other words, we're using human reason to understand the moral absolutes, but we're not using human reason to, to concoct them, just to, just to pull them out of the air. And I think that's a big difference. Okay. Um, this person says, if Christianity is so poorly understood by so many people, isn't that indicative that it's not a successful belief system? Yeah, it's just better than the other ones. That's his vote. He's cast it. No, right. I mean, I, th I think that's fair to say. I yep. mean, obviously, by the way, you know, atheism has a horrible record of totalitarianism, too. I, I, I actually, I'll put it this way. There is something. This is, I, <laughs> I knew you would be asking these questions. They're great questions. They're absolutely warranted. And they're, they are really the hardest questions for somebody like me to answer because there's no way to, I'm trying to give you explanations, so, so it's the, the inconsistencies of Christians are not completely opaque and utterly uh, under, you know, I, I want them to be a little more understandable, but I'm, at the same time, it sure sounds like I'm justifying it, I don't want to, but, um, the, read the question again, it was... Uh, if Christianity is so poorly understood yeah, yeah, by right. so many, isn't that proof that it's an unsuccessful yeah. belief system. Right. Um, there's something in the human heart that really tends to oppression and violence. It's very strong. That's the reason why Leotard said uh, that anybody who thinks they have the truth tends to become an oppressor so fast. Uh, the real problem, of course, is 
being a postmodernist or being a relativist or being an atheist or whatever that you are, you, you have a terrible record. There's just, everybody does. And therefore, I would say, in fact, there's a, um, oh dear, Karen Armstrong wrote a book recently about what he called, she basically, the, about the myth of religious violence. And she was saying, people tend to say that religion tends to violence, and she, violence, she goes through history and actually shows that people have a tendency for violence. And that, that uh, even Christianity, granted for a minute that it's true, even Christianity actually uh, isn't a magic bullet. It's not a silver bullet, it's not a magic pill or something. It, uh, it still tends to break through even with Christians as well. Uh, on the other hand, you do, again, we're here to compare. See, what I'm going to try to say, what I'm trying to say to you, if you really say, ah, Christianity, look at all the oppression, that sort of thing, where are you going to go? See, you can't be without beliefs. And if you go to secularism or atheism or something like that, if you go in that direction, atheist regimes have a horrible record. So it's not, it's not exactly like uh, you can just be, uh, you know, in limbo somewhere. Uh, that's why my original joke, I, I like to stand by my original joke. Yes, it's not a very successful belief system, but it's better than the other ones. Uh, well, thank you guys so much. We have time for one more question. And for, thank you for sending in the question. I'm so sorry we couldn't get to so many. But please remember, right after this, Tim is going to be upstairs on the fifth floor. And we hope you'll join us for food and drinks and conversation. There will also be some other staff, um, Christian Christian group leaders, and Tim. So again, thank you again for the questions. And please do join us upstairs to continue the conversation. Um, so, Tim, we're going to end with this question. You know, we've highlighted um, a lot of failures of uh, the church, uh, people not accessing the resources of Christianity. Uh, but this question, I think, is related to what happens if we do uh, or people try to access what Christianity claims to offer. Um, this person asks, does loving sacrificially like Christ entail that I would be treated like a doormat? No, actually, give me. I'll give you two answers. Uh, though I, I see the time is up, and we we need to end here. But first of all, uh, the worst thing you can, the most unloving thing you can do for somebody is to let them sin. So, um, honestly, if someone is being verbally abusive to you, the reason you shouldn't just sit there and take it is what you know. Would you say you have too much self-respect? Uh, you got to protect yourself. Uh, you can't let yourself be treated like this. Uh, you you have more dignity and self-respect uh, than can allow that. Yeah, yes, of course you're in the image of God, and and it. But the point is, it is really unloving to that person just to let them do that. It's unloving to everybody in the world because if you just let that person do it and you don't confront them, they're going to do it to somebody else. They, they may do it to somebody else anyway. But there, there's no chance of them ever improving. There's no chance of them uh, ever getting self-control. There's no chance of them becoming better themselves unless you confront them and you say, I'm not going to let you do this. Why? The Christian answer is out of love for them, out of love for everybody else in the human world, because that person, you're going to try to stop them for the love of other people. You're going to try to stop them for the love of them. And of course, out of respect for yourself. But you know, uh, frankly, I have to tell you, if you actually do it mainly for yourself, you will do a bad job of confronting that person. Because instead of trying to stop their, their sin out of love for them, you'll be paying them back. 
And therefore, um, I, I think that's all I'm going to say at this point. It, uh, no, absolutely not. It would be so unloving to oppressive people and to the rest of the world to let yourself be a doormat. Thanks for listening to the Questioning Christianity podcast. And remember, you can find more content to help you explore the claims of Christianity by visiting gospelandlife.com slash explore. That's gospelandlife.com slash explore. The Questioning Christianity talks in this series were recorded in 2019 in New York City, where Dr. Keller spoke with a local live gathering made up of attendees who did not identify as Christian and their Christian friends who invited them.